Hello and welcome to the very first BAST webinar. I'm so excited to be delivering this. Um, it's giving me a chance to geek out with other singing teachers and explore and discuss and have conversations, hopefully laugh, maybe we might cry about our experiences as being a singing teacher. My name is Lynn Hilton. I'm the founder and creator of the BAST 20-hour training course for people who want to become singing teachers. This podcast is for you guys as well. I want to make sure that you're getting the information that you need and that we're creating a great supportive community for you so that you can teach with confidence and enjoyment uh, and in the security of knowing that you've got people who can help you along the way. Stuff that I probably didn't have as much as I would have liked to in the beginning. My first guest is Kaya Hursted Kani. She's one of the best trainers and she's a fantastic singer, teacher, educator, very inspiring person. She loves working with choirs. She teaches at the Academy of Contemporary Music as a lecturer there in the development side. She also has her own one-to-one -one studio and um, she has had a very interesting journey as a singer and also as a teacher and she's going to share some of that with us. So sit back and enjoy our conversation. I hope you get inspired, that you learn something. I know I did. Uh, also hang out for at the end where we actually answer a question from one of the BAST members. And if you have any questions that you'd like to answer, doesn't matter what it's about with regard to singing or teaching, then make sure that you post your questions so that we can uh, hand deal with it in the next podcast. Okay, so let's get into it. Oh, oh. So welcome, Kaya. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I thought I'd start with some questions about singing because obviously we've all come to this uh, point in our careers as teachers because actually we started off as singers. And I think it's easier to forget that sometimes. So I wanted to also focus on that aspect, you know, when I had my discussion with the teachers because obviously this is what initially drives us is the fact that we are singers and uh, may still be singing or wanting to sing. So I'd really love to hear the story behind um, how you got to be a singer and what journey you've taken in, in that path. Right, so I don't remember not singing um, and, like, I literally have tapes of me the Christmas before I turned one a couple of weeks later uh, singing the Christmas songs in tune but I couldn't speak purely I didn't say the right words so I, I literally have always sung and uh, my dad sung a lot around us uh, growing up and um, family parties always around music and singing but um, it wasn't necessarily a career it was something I, I think in no way uh, people are generally quite sensible and it's not necessarily something you can be so um it was something I just always got lots of joy from and um and I was doing a lot of creative writing as well on the other side but I hadn't actually put the two together until I uh, became about sort of 14 16 I was like oh I write and I do singing hmm um and I started writing for my own music and at this point again it was not necessarily a career it was a way of getting through difficult times it was through digesting emotions both singing others and my own material and um, somewhere along the lines I managed to do a, a kind of we have something in Norway called uh, Folkehøyskole which is directly translated to folk high school 
but it's um, a residential gap year type school. So you basically just live there for a year. And um, I did music and theatre and Lippa in Liverpool came to my school and held auditions. And I had heard about this because my old singing teacher was like, oh, actually, there's a pop school over in England and Paul McCartney's involved or something. And I remember like, oh, uh, but, well, my mom literally said when I said I wanted to be a singer, but you're smart. So there wasn't necessarily something that was expected in my family. So uh, long story short, I ended up in Liverpool to do a apparently a one-year course and felt like Harry Potter at Hogwarts and everybody's weird and creative like me, even though there might have been some that weren't necessarily perfect. It was essentially, I felt home um, and I ended up doing the full degree there and stayed in Liverpool for 17 years. And yeah, I still sing and perform in my band, Science of the Lamps, uh, festivals. And I like not having the pressure with the band to have to earn money from my original music. I can just continue to do that for my heart and for my head. Um, and singing teaching was kind of the start of that because I had a little bit of a negative experience through the major industry with a, a contract that um, didn't work out how I wanted it. And I wasn't, I didn't feel comfortable in any part of that. And I thought, oh, maybe I just, it's not for me being an artist and started getting involved with organization and, and thought maybe I'll do some function band thing. But that, that was never for me because I think, I don't get to, exp- I'm way too needy as a performer to to uh, not have people clap afterwards. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it became a thing where I covered at my old uni at Lippa. My old lecturer asked, what, I, what are you doing tonight? And I said, I'm not sure. And he said, oh, could you cover singing elective from six till nine? And I heard my mouth go, yes. And I remember thinking inside, ah, what are you doing? You've only just graduated. You can't do this. Um, yeah and then that was my first into teaching and I realized even though I was terrified and felt absolutely incompetent and probably in many (laughs) ways was um, I really enjoyed it I enjoyed the human interaction and I realized I enjoyed it a lot more than maybe the more kind of function gigs and and the more I started teaching the more being part of somebody's journey to find themselves and and being that person that other people were to me in, in my development is, yeah, that's kind of the short story. <laughs> Obviously, we're talking since 99, so we're coming up to 19 years of UK. And, yeah. yeah. So I found that really interesting when you were talking about um, your mother <laughs> saying you're smart. So <laughs> that doesn't make sense to go and become a singer. <laughs> and I wondered... Um, I mean, obviously, for people who've not been, who are not in the music industry or who haven't seen other people making a career from it, that is a perception, isn't it, that actually you don't, being smart and being a singer doesn't seem to come together. Same with yeah, it's, it's the other Yeah, one. it's not a proper job, right? And, and, and my mum and dad had to kind of fight to be able to go to university and college and were the first in, their, uh, in my family to to kind of go and do higher education. And and they had to fight through it for their parents to like, well, shouldn't you go and get a proper job? So um, I think 
it was always in the cards that I go to university. And eventually I did, but I got to study pop music and songwriting. And um, and I think that was kind of a, a compromise in some ways because expectations when you're when you're a kid your parents kind of well they don't decide for you but they they are the ones who say yay or nay at the end of the day and choosing your education you know you do that kind of when you're 17 18 years old when you're still not really fully you don't dare to stand up as much or I did and then kind of but it's not a comfortable experience I think a lot of people what could have been artist development through um, through labels or through management in the past when there was more money in the music industry, education is now kind of fulfilling. And, you know, I'm working at the academy, uh, as I know you've, you've done <laughs> many a times. Uh, you're kind of taking the role of what an artist development agency or, or label would in the past. And, I do think it's it's changed the view because we know now that there's so many transferable skills. So even even if you don't end up going becoming an artist, there's so much you learn from doing a degree. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I've I mean I've done so many different things within the music industry, and singing is at the heart of it, or music is at the heart of it. But I also learned loads of skills about talking to people and working with people and, you know, the writing techniques and all that kind of stuff that, yeah. So would you encourage, if a student came to you and said, I'm thinking of going into a music college, would you encourage it or encourage it? I would definitely encourage it because essentially when else will you have 40 hours a week to spend on music? Hmm. And you're doing it because... Well, it it depends. I also have students who do a degree because they think they should, and they definitely waste it because they might not want to be told ideas. They want to figure everything out themselves. They want, don't want to think of music as as commerce. They want to just do it for their own enjoyment. And and there is definitely a kind of there's a a, a battle between the making a living and and actually having music as a hobby and a lot of people I think go into higher education or even further education doing like music A-levels and stuff like that and almost lose the passion for um for what they're doing at least for a while and that is generally because they are well they haven't thought of it as a job they've thought of it as a hobby and all of a sudden they can't put it down they have to do it and sometimes that takes the enjoyment out of it. Mm. I, I often like that, liking that as, you know, when you're in the first in a relationship, you always have your best behavior at every time and, you know, always look your best, always make an effort. And then when you move in with someone, all of a sudden you you see all facets of them and you either fall more in, more in love with them despite or maybe even because of, or it would break up. Mm. And many people come into university to study music it's it's like breaking up with their hobby right interesting so my opinion is if somebody asks me about going to college and the benefits or 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 the disadvantages I will say it will be what you make of it 
And at the end of the day, a degree is not going to get you a job or a diploma won't get you the job, but you will make um, friends and network with people that you might not normally get to meet if you were trying to do this all by yourself. And also you will learn from people who've already been working in the industry and you can learn from their mistakes rather than having to make mistakes yourself. So it's a little bit of a shortcut and say you could spend 10, 15 years in the industry learning all that stuff or you could go to university for two to three years and actually get that information directly, you know, from the horse's mouth kind of thing. And, and at the end of the day, there will be some information that's not useful, may, will never be useful. There'll be some information that might be not useful right now, but you never know, you might need it in five, ten years' time. And there'll be other stuff which is really relevant to what's happening in the industry now. And if you get on it, the sooner the better, um, and it will make your journey easier. Um, so, you know, I, I think... a people go to uni sometimes thinking that they're going to get a job but of course and this is across the board with other fields as well there is no guarantee in fact there are many graduates coming out of even more conventional uh courses which are not uh they're not guaranteeing a job afterwards in fact a lot of people are still unemployed Yes, the Avenue Q song, yeah, What We Do in a BA in English. It's a, there's a lot of, uh, of things like that. But yeah, what you were saying earlier, there's a, there's a really good quote by a um, physicist and philosopher uh, Niels Bohr. I don't know if you come across that education isn't magic, it's wisdom wrung from failure. And I think it's it's, it's a kind of, yeah, if, if you get it right, then you, you save yourself a lot of years of making mistakes. Yeah, I I can't find find the quote, um, but I'm pretty sure it came from Karate Kid, which is <laughs> the mentor said something like, uh, "Stupid people never learn. Intelligent people learn from their mistakes, and wise people learn from others." And I, it's kind of not that similar. I mean, it's yeah. kind of similar in that idea of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. So I'd like to dig in a little deeper into your teaching. Uh, evolution so you obviously you got thrown in at the deep end <laughs> and then found you actually had a taste for it which was cool and there are people who sometimes will start uh, going and teaching and realizing that they hate it and you know that does that happens the other way around too but I just wondered um, what would what do you feel uh, you had that equipped you for teaching to that point and what do you feel that you didn't have and what did you go and do to go and correct that? Ooh, good question. Um, so I had been working as a, an ice hockey coach and a football coach and an aerobic instructor um, when I was younger and also while I was studying. Um, so I guess I had a lot of the kind of keep a crowd, um, the, the entertaining versus driving and inspiration that, that that though I learned a lot from the kind of sports world there and coming from sports college before I went um it was a lot of the, the sports psychology and, and and you know inspiring and motivating people so I guess that was a really good thing for me and, and I use so much from that world every day um I my first kind of experience with teaching was while I was still at uni um, but at that point, I was just volunteering at New Deal for Musicians. And then I didn't think it was quite for me because um, 
not every one of them actually wanted to be there. And then I kind of did a stage school as well. And it was like babysitting a lot because a lot of the, there wasn't the kids. So there were times when I went, oh, it's probably not for me. But actually going back with more teaching experience to in the stage school environment with classroom management tools and I had a completely different experience and I had a different confidence in myself as well. You know, early 20s, I kind of overanalyzed absolutely everything and um, and didn't have the natural authority. So I guess that was a big challenge in the beginning, of, you know, um, and overcoming in one way was... <laughs> I, I, th- I think it happened so gradually, I can't even say when. I mean, I did study in the SLS system with the teaching observations and, and actually, I guess, being observed also and peer observation and things like that. And it, it does help with your confidence. So I would recommend for any new start teachers to actually get their teachers in to observe, whether it's by Skype or, or something like that, and, and actually... It can help validate um, and be humble about suggestions and things like that. So, you know, we're not going to be perfect. I, I'm not perfect now. I, but there are times when things come out of my mouth and I go, but that was not a part of my teaching methodology. I need to <laughs> rein it back. But at the same time, I love teaching in university slash higher education slash adult slash professional environments because I feel I can be a little bit more fully me whilst teaching kids and anymore in school setting um, wasn't quite as good a fit for me personally um, because of my personality and my humor I think as well because I'm I'm quite kind of I like really dry and often a little bit sarcastic humor and, and obviously kids don't get that nuance and I do have to watch out if I've got for, for instance if I've got um, people on the spectrum in the room who who I know wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't get that side of um, of uh, my humor mm. and I might have to kind of make sure I mean if we we have like a little system where on the register I can see if somebody's got learning needs and and I can kind of adjust that to make sure I if I've said something, I might say, of course, that is a metaphor. Uh, <laughs> or, or, yeah, you know what I mean. But uh, that that is one of those things um, of understanding that people have different needs and mm-hmm. understanding is not about me. And just because I learned in that way, it doesn't mean the students can learn that way. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work, even though it always works that way, with a student in front of you, just while well, you no should work isn't working whatever that tool is um you just have to be flexible and find a way around it and mm. and I do find that there's very few students I don't manage to find a connection with but that's looking for their way in and I I do actually <laughs> I really love turning a student around to a subject like the really really good students are so much fun and then the ones who kind of come in a little bit skeptical to actually manage to burn like light that fire Mm. it's great and 
I guess sometimes the challenge is to see all the ones who are just the good students who just get on with they're not they don't particularly excel and they and they don't do anything wrong of actually giving them the same amount of in a classroom anyway that can be really a challenge mm. but, so from a pedagogical point of view how did you develop your skills and your knowledge oh um so you started you said you had the sls training yeah i spent six years in that system and i learned loads from that um especially about the kind of toolbox about the demonstration instructions scales consonants vowels um at that point i didn't know the science behind it i just knew you know that vowel is good for building chest and that vowel is good for releasing into head but i didn't know why Mm. um but i've always been quite inquisitive and i wanted to know why so um which I really enjoy about kind of being part of the wider network, both the BAST and, and the Vocology in Practice, where we're kind of, I'm constantly learning. So, and working in academia meant, because um, I ended up doing an MA in performing arts education. And I did three main research, because it was a part-time over three years and three main research projects. And the first one, I was working on um, audition preparation, because I was working on the foundation diploma at Lippa and, Essentially, the whole last half a year was just preparing these actors, dancers and singers for auditions to music academies and drama schools and stuff like that. And, you know, it was a very harsh environment for them. You have half a year to basically learn all the skills and then half a year to kind of build them up again for rejection, because essentially it's going to be a lot of them. And then you have some stars in the class who got in everywhere and could just choose and then you have some people who go to all the audition and get callbacks and just just not get there and so I I kind of wanted to explore the person um, and that has been a big using the use of language mindfulness uh, relaxation techniques um, NLP to a certain extent um, uh, mindset so Carol Dweck is a great resource there um, and then looking at kind of drive this model, a model of, of, of skill exercition and, you know, multiple, in- all of that kind of stuff, because I had to look into the the academic side and, and start reading journals. Because even at this station, when you go to an academy rather than university, university the, the academic side is often not... L- it's not less prioritized, but it's a complementary to the practical vocational. So we didn't really do a lot of academic practice in writing. So there was minimal journals and things like that as part of my degree, but whatever my tutor recommended. <laughs> and then doing the MA, that was a kind of crash landing into oh, right, there's a whole academic. I thought this was an original thought, but it's not. There's 36 citations and, <laughs> you know, um, and I do. Yeah, way of doing your um, uh, references, the referencing. Yeah. Totally stump people, yeah. Completely, and, and I remember getting my first, because I had gotten good grades for my writing in, in the degree and getting my first back, and it was like a mere pass, and I was like, what? What's going on? <laughs> And I just like okay, I had the here same we go. Experience actually, yeah. <laughs> when I took my degree, because in nursing we we had 
a mix of the practical and we had exams, mm. but we it wasn't academic, it was hospital-based education. And so when I went to university, I thought, well, you know, I've done exams and written assignments, etc. And I wrote this assignment, uh, which I thought was really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I was because I was a mature age student, even when I did my undergrad course. And uh, it came back at just over 50%. And I was like, what? <laughs> I went in and saw the tutor and I said, you know, okay, I just need to know what have I done wrong? And he said, you would have got a high distinction except your referencing was inaccurate and I went are you serious <laughs> and I was of the same you know I was like same mind switch of oh it's not about original thought it's not about how much work I've done and how much I've analyzed and you know it's actually just about knowing how to put your references in the correct way yeah. and I it was Thank yeah acknowledging slap. others and all that kind yeah, of yeah it was a bit of a slap in the face but the next one I got like nearly 100% I think so I went okay I can <laughs> <laughs> that's, but it's, that's it's a skill great. set isn't it it's a different kind of skill set and yeah. um and I I see the same in my students now I try kind of bring it in at degree level so that they if they go off and do a master's they yeah. don't have to have the same experience yeah. but but at the same time, saying that, and I, I kind of feel like I did the wrong master. I did it because it was a sensible, and I also got it funded from where I was working. So I wish I'd done an MA that was either down the ecology kind of path or in reg- relations to nature and nurture and artistry. So mm. I think I'd, I'd throw myself a bit full, more fully into it. The educational principles, um, even though I'm passionate about it, to spend three years of my life on it, I think I would have preferred to to do something where I then did it for one year and just threw myself completely into it. But I also got a bit discovered um, through doing a maternity cover at um, the Raucous Caucus Recovery Chorus, uh, which is a, a choir for people in recovery for ad- from addiction. And it was a proper kind of person changed for me because before that I'd kind of gone us and them a little bit with addiction and then speaking to all these people who many of them could have been my friends because they'd done a season in a you know a cruise ship and something and it was free something or another and and that essentially became their start of their addiction journey and and loads of little stories like that and and it made a big difference in understanding of, of product versus process as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't do my, like, I get really greedy with my, like with my uni choir and the community choir. I, I was running for 10 years before I moved from, uh, from Liverpool. I'll have like up to 12 parts sometimes. Uh, and there'll be loads of like overlaying harmonies and rhythmical things and all that. And, and it, I'm greedy with harmonies. Um, but I had to kind of go, if you manage to get the harmony line in there or a call and response, it's a success. But every time we ended the session, um, they would come up and go, I just had the best of time. I live for the choir. This is how I feel like, like in my life as purpose. And I was like, whoa, we just sang. Did you hear what that sounded like? And like, by by session two or three, I'm I'm almost welling up talking about it. But the session, I I could completely be part of that with them, mm. and 
I guess the community music end of like being able to run choirs as well as like I love doing one-to-one sessions with a talented young artist and helping them find their sound and mm. and experiment and make sure they're singing healthy and but I also love this idea that music is about process not just product mm. so yeah <laughs> it's great and it, it's sometimes it takes time or experience um to get to that place you know you probably wouldn't have been in that place when you were 20 no so no definitely that's what I enjoy about this whole journey is that it as as I've as I've grown older and had more experience um I've been able to make adjustments in my teaching and my focus you know business-wise as well uh to keep up with where I'm at um so it's just constantly evolving and I think when I first started out I just assumed there was this one goal and that was it you know you didn't go any further whereas now I just see this huge huge spectrum of options and choices um and benefits you know and experiences that I can have what do you feel were your major challenges then when you first started out teaching discipline yeah especially in the classroom setting I think one-to-one um, it was more not being able to help students that didn't have the problems that I had. Mm-hmm. So if they had like my voice problems, it was really easy to yeah. fix. Yeah. But if if somebody came in and before I had that kind of understanding of exercises and, and the vocal anatomy, I was kind of, I heard, I had a good ear for when something wasn't quite right, mm. but I didn't have the tool to fix it. And that, I found that very challenging, both because, you know, I, I might just say, oh, let's work on your diction and things that my teachers, I, I was, all my teachers were in here and like speaking through me and I didn't really have any independent opinions or thoughts in regards to, oh, that's obviously not, it's a <laughs> simplification of things, but I was trying to be all of the teachers that I had mm. loved but without, I guess, the full knowledge or understanding of where they came from. Mm. Um, and especially Have I found... Any major disasters that you can remember that kind of... <laughs> um, I think I was a bit cocky when it came to um, vocal coaching versus singing teaching because all my experiences with singing teachers at that point had been basically trying to make me sing musical theatre or classical. So I kind of assumed, and, and and I guess we're talking back, you know, early 2000. So I finished my degree in 2003. And I guess there was a lot of singing teachers that were, you, the, the route was either jazz or, or classical, or what we call in, in, in Norway, you do jazz, classical or rhythmical is now anything else, which from all kind of world music and pop music. And, and I think that's still... Well, now you can pretty much study pop music studies at most universities, but it's still with the um, with the kind of methodology from classical music. And I don't think I think there is a bit of a some of it is more cultural studies, and uh, there's a bit of a of a mismatch there because you don't necessarily, as a good pop singer, you don't necessarily need your four octaves. Um, so I, I guess I find it a challenge to bring, you know, all kind of placements and stuff like that and actually make it work it in 
worth bringing it into the classroom because it sounded wrong. Mm. And obviously from sports science, I then kind of went, well, it's the same muscles. They're just used in a different way. So you're getting a coordination that is potentially not even helpful. Mm. Not understanding that, well, actually it's just a knob of coordination and, and you can, it's not like you can't learn how to do both street dance and ballet mm. just because it's, but you need to have an understanding of the genre and the style. So what were you saying though about you were cocky? Was so I was a bit like, so pop pop music is more about conviction and intention and and a lot of the vocal problems will be sorted if you just go with the right. conviction and intention because right. that's essentially what my pop teachers were telling me because yeah. they hadn't had their... Right. So I was, I was kind of calling myself a vocal coach, not a singing teacher. Yeah. And I was a little bit snobbish reverse snobbish yeah. about the role of a singing teacher right right um like a lot of <laughs> my students are about singing lessons yeah. so i can i can really relate to that because they're scared of losing the authenticity mm. um but now i know so much i can go well actually let's do this mm. and i have this toolbox of of things that makes them do quick changes that they're still sounding like they want to but they can do it with for longer or mm. you know they don't lose their voice after the gig and all that kind of stuff so um I think I never knew as much when I was 20 as when I was 20 mm. you know there's a, there's a kind of arrogance of being old teenager young 20s mm. when you really feel like you should know everything so there's a also a kind of not arrogance isn't even the right word there's a there's a conviction and a black and whiteness I guess that like the 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 older I get and the more I learn the less I think I know Mm. like even last year I had a bit of a kind of all the performance and harmonics and and like not really feeling like it can stay involved enough or as much as some gave me a little bit of a knock in confidence and then I was like wait I have different specialities some of them don't know what I know about mental training or mm. or classroom management or or inspiring and motivating a person and, mm. and it's okay not to know everything but then gradually also try and acquire new knowledge all the time mm. so um, yeah. It's interesting when you learn, well, I find when I learn something new, suddenly that becomes my focus and it's my everything. And, and in fact, I was talking the other day to uh, one, of the, one, of my, one of the teachers that I'm working with um, about how you have to balance between getting excited and focusing on learning this new thing and not making your students become obsessed about it because I know that because of my focus in certain things that I learned along the way suddenly I'd realize oh now that student's thinking about only that and they think that that's the only way that they can get to becoming a better singer and that's my fault because I've just focused on it so much and I've not actually identified that this is just one new thing or different thing that we're approaching that's going to be you know complementary to everything else um but by the same token you kind of need to focus on new things in order to learn more about it so for instance when I started 
going down that track of um, say vocal fold closure I was doing that on all my students and a lot of my exercises were focused on that and then I realized oh but I'm ignoring all this other stuff and of course mm. the other thing too which I find found for a while especially when I was working with SLS was I became so focused on technique that I wasn't doing anything creative yeah it's a very difficult balance at times because you kind of got to do it in order to learn more uh, but then you've got to be careful not to then lead the student down to believing that this is the only way forward for them yeah completely and and you know some of my many ways most enjoyable students are the ones who either completely shut out the technique bit or the ones who are like teach me more about how does that thing with the power I've written I then crack you know and 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 you kind of can geek out with the and 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 explore things together and and they'll bring you stuff because they've learned read an article that you haven't read and all that kind of stuff whilst these other ones just force you to go back to why you're doing this in the first place mm. which is about the music so I do love having I love letting the student lead the lesson because um, mm. I think that's how we learn mm. oh I just remember another big challenge uh guys in uh-huh. the beginning I just felt for many reasons one of them being especially if it was like a, an adult man and, and and I just felt like it was a child sometime because of the way maybe some guys speak to uh, and I, I often found that authority in the class and I don't mean authority as an authoritarian but it's my classroom kind of thing um I do like the I don't like the master student relationship I do prefer the kind of peer with more experience mm-hmm. but I didn't often feel like I had the more experience to give me the confidence and there were some situations both maybe a little bit sexist or times where I just didn't know what to do with a male voice so that was something that in the early days I'd I'd found the challenge and learning little tools like let me demonstrate that in my range and then move it down or um, also if they really can't hear which octave or something like that actually go and just listen to the original track or or find it in a voice. So, yeah. Those, yeah. I remember my very first student ever was mm-hmm. a male. <laughs> and it was actually in the process of, of bringing my fingers to the keyboard that I realised I had no clue what I was supposed to do. <laughs> That's how stupid I was. Um, yeah, I, I was so excited about it all and, and just hadn't con- considered that at all you know not only did I not really know what to do with a voice other than mine and even then I'm not sure convincingly I knew what to do with mine but I hadn't really explored the idea of teaching the opposite sex and um, I, I just remember feeling incredibly foolish at the time and and I blagged my way out of it but afterwards I was uh, I just thought I need to do a lot more work on how to be be a teacher you know just because I know all this stuff about music doesn't a teacher me make and yeah. it was a very humbling experience um, yeah for sure um so what else did I want to ask you about do you, so you've been teaching best for a while and obviously working with 
um, other singing teachers uh, along the way. And I wondered if you saw any kind of patterns or changes or trends that are coming along that interest you or worry you, you know, in, in teaching? I, I do think that singing teachers are taking more, well, obviously the ones I meet because they want to do courses and, and, and I do the te- teacher training for, I mentor for ecology and practice as well. So I'm, I'm lucky to working with singing teachers who have this thirst for knowledge. But I do think there's a trend for singing teachers to want to know more. So there'll be less of the place your note over there and sing from your diaphragm and all these kind of like stock phrases that doesn't really mean anything. Well, they can, you know, they can help, but not for everyone. Mm. Um, And I guess there is, I think I've definitely seen a trend of that. Mm. Um, Also, I think there's a trend in, in the UK to accept that vocal training is like in the music industry, that, that it's, a, it's, it's a viable, acceptable mm-hmm. and actually necessary thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that is partly because of um, these big singers who now are, um, um, well, have been official about their vocal injuries and, and there seems to be slightly less stigma. Mm-hmm. It's not because you're a rubbish singer, you're an athlete and you happen to have an injury. And what do you do? You make sure that you get trained in a rehabilitation like you would a physiotherapist and mm. I think I think that's really exciting because it can be such a I mean you know when you lose your voice because you've had a like I had a chest infection and I, I sang through it like I would tell my students not to do um, and I got voice loss for the best part of a week and it was terrifying and I you know kind of call it singer's depression because you start going straight to what am I going to do if I lose my voice and you know it's it's a terrifying thing but seeing it as something that is actually something we might experience and and remember and for me it's because I want to say yes to everything because I'm excited and I want to help people I don't want to let people down and I've, I've started moving on and I actually had to cancel a teacher training seminar just before Christmas because my voice was going and I thought if I do this my voice will go mm. and then I'll have another two months of recovery like I did last year. Yeah. And it was, for me, that was a horrible thing to do because I hate letting people down, but actually people were respecting my, and I thought they would go like, what? She's losing her voice and she's supposed to teach us, <laughs> you know, well, actually they were going, I'm so sorry. You're going through this rough time with your voice. And, and I, Oh, okay. They're not expecting me to. And and I, I know it sounds obvious and it's what I always tell my students, but you can't teach yourself. Mm. And yeah, I'm learning to gradually not take on as much. And the same thing with the, with the conference you were doing, that was at the same time. I was like, if I do this, I will get worse. Mm. But I really feel like I should. And I guess that's another mm. good girl syndrome you know, wanting to do well and wanting to please other people. And and, and I guess that's a trend in many. And many, I guess, especially female teachers of maybe going a little bit too far for maybe doing nine, 10-hour days and 
actually that's a, a both sexes of of packing the schedule because I definitely know males who do that yeah yeah <laughs> I was gonna say yeah that that bit is I think is right across or, and and kind of I think it's think... friend in general yeah you know, I was talking to some friends um who Australian friends about the trend in working practices and I think that people are working way more than the you know accepted 40 hour week um in general even even in a full-time job a lot of people tend to take work home there's this pressure constantly and I yeah it's going to impact on singing teachers just as much and even more so because you're still in that freelancer kind of mode of like if I don't work I might not you know get the money get paid yeah so it's, it is a, an additional pressure that um, that you have as a singing teacher. Definitely. Um, so is there anything else that you wanted to bring up? Um, I mean, we, we've talked obviously a little bit about the classroom teaching um, and some of the differences. Um, it seems that having some kind of training in classroom management is a benefit. Uh, and also that in, you can still apply that idea of um, student-led learning in the classroom. Definitely. And, and, and I guess particularly bringing in discussion a lot. And so you're not teaching a class. Mm. You're teaching a group of individuals. Mm. And you kind of have to go in and, and learn and have an independent relationship with each one of them. And I, especially difficult, like on a Wednesday now, I teach four groups of around 25 students and they're new to me this year. And it's really hard to then straight away gain an independent relationship with each one. And I'm still learning their names and, and that kind of, I do have cheaty pictures on the register, but sometimes they send in like, uh, you know, really posy images, and um, so I might not. Well, they've got lots of makeup on in the lots of makeup yeah. in the dark from above <laughs> with gravity. It, yeah, all sorts of, of of pictures where you go, oh, oh, that's you, right? <laughs> okay. Um, and actually, even um, I've got one student who who is now not um, being known as the same sex as as what they were on the. On, on the registration. registration so the name has changed on the register but the picture is still right. from when they were presenting as their uh, birth sex right. so which is an additional challenge that um um might come up um especially vocally then um yeah the uh it's, it's kind of about fi- remembering a little that's why I always get them to like tell a little anecdote or something and, and I try and, and, and attach the name to the anecdote because mm. there'll be something that I might bring in back in in a, in a little joke or something, uh, you know, like blah, 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 who loves coconuts, uh, or, you know, and, and they just feel a little bit seen because that's what we all want really is just to be seen and appreciated. Although some students wouldn't want to be seen and pointed out in the classroom and you kind of have to figure out which one those are that you need to go over and just have that conversation as they come into the classroom. And, and I even do codes with, with, especially with the performance classes. If I have a student who's just suffered with anxiety, if I ask them, how are you today? And I, most people I will say, 
hello everyone or, or how are you but if I say how are you today that's like my little code for some of the students mm-hmm. and if they say I'm great then they definitely want to get up mm-hmm. if they say I'm okay uh, then they might want to get up but we'll put the hand up mm-hmm. and if the, if they say I'm fine then they don't want to get up oh okay and <laughs> I love that strategy and it's kind of a, a way of not pointing out that they don't want to go up mm. Because that might uh, um, exacerbate their anxieties, mm. um, but at the same time, it's giving them the opportunity. Because some of them really wants to get up, yeah. but they would never put their hand up. Right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, what about from a technical point of view? How do you manage classroom teaching? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, I tend to start from um, around an A and play male octave and sing the female octave and then say if if I have some really low females to say um you can jump down the octave when it well I always say that you know don't push yourself if we're doing a dance class we start with stretches we don't start with high kicks Mm -hmm. I cannot hear you this is not a personal trainer session this is not for us to do exercises that's for tutorial setting this is for us to do a an exercise routine so you're jogging you're not sprinting you're not lifting heavy weights you're keeping fit um and I think that I do speak in analogies being a songwriter but but I think that that kind of resonates with many that it's not where you expand your range you work within what you've got and it's important for the singers to be aware of where they're at so Mm -hmm. don't really go any higher up than like well on the one and a half octave scale I might not go up to a C on the top. Um, six? Yeah, like if it's, a, if it's a train, if it's level six, if it's trained singers. Mm. But I'll, I'll, with the choir, I won't even go much higher than a D or E because we don't need it okay. for the material that we're singing. Mm. So that, it, again, it's horses for courses. Yeah, yeah. I think my general rule of thumb is G5. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, generally it tends to be F. But uh, as I said, sometimes if you see everybody in there, and I always point out like eyebrow singing, <laughs> so like I don't want any eyebrows or double chins, and that <laughs> means they're thinking up and down. And we'll talk about how there are no high notes and low notes, only fast vibrations and slow vibrations. Right. And I want to see relaxation. And you know, if if I know the student group well, which I do with my with my artists, then uh, artist course. I tend to say things from the tutorials. It's like, um, you know, Sarah, you can do the dip. Um, or, or, and then when after I've done, that's generally semi-occluded exercises for all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I tend to ask for them to do the home base if I do the one and a half octave. Um, and I say, so for some of you, just to remind them, if you're working on power, that might've been the nay or, and I kind of simplify things mm-hmm. and, if you need a bit more release today, let's give me a wolf for a wee and they'll remember which one we did in the tutorial mm-hmm. so they can kind of apply that. It does sound a bit weird. Mm. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of semi-occluded basically. Mm. Okay. So when I was doing classroom teaching, and I don't know if this is the right thing to do given that obviously there's different personality types and maybe I should have had a more safe mode for those. But I actually did, in the first few weeks, a vocal assessment on each individual. Mm. 
yeah, I've done that as well. As part of the class, uh, which was obviously me getting to know their voice and then also getting them used to just singing in front of other people regardless of what their voice is sounding like and being okay about it and also helping them, the others that are listening to be more analytical in their approach to voice so that they can hear all the different voice types and all the different issues and um, and that everybody has something they need to work on. And I, I, for voice technique classes, I would always do that, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Although, um, um, so I was talking more like general performance classes. Oh, no, well, I was actually asking about voice technique classes. Yeah. Uh, also, the thing is, they're kind of not completely separate either. So I do voice technique in in both the performance classes and choir classes. Mm-hmm. But if I'm doing the vocal technique class, then I am expecting everybody to get up. And, and I, I also, you know, let them know that the only way we can, you, you only learn slightly outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. And if you make a mistake, I can help you. Yes. Because I know what's going on. So actually, I really like it if you make a mistake in this because it makes my job much easier. If you yeah. do it perfectly, then I have to work much harder. <laughs> and I kind of do it in, in, yeah. in that. Yeah. And then if I make a mistake on the piano, I always tell them that I do it so that they'll feel comfortable about making mistakes. Mm. <laughs> no, but it's that it's, mistakes are the only way we can learn. Mm. Um, I also, if somebody is really kind of obsessed about making mistakes then I talk about the error related negativity signals Mm. and kind of how actually the fact that you really notice when you make a mistake makes you a good learner but the only way you can become a great learner is by building up the PE signal which is the signal that comes after the that makes you okay I'm going to fix this Mm. cool so we've come to a segment now where the interviewee gets to ask the interviewer a question. Ooh, um, <laughs> Hopefully the interviewer can answer. Uh, so here's your opportunity if you have a question that you'd like to ask me and it can be about, you know, any aspect of teaching or the course or... Um, Do you know what? I think one thing that I've found challenging and still working out um, is when a student comes to you and they might have a been to another singing teacher and spent a lot of money or time um, and they're coming to you with things that you believe to be inaccurate or that isn't part of your philosophy of of like obviously not me make them feel like they've wasted all this time and, and they've worked with somebody who isn't good mm. but at the same time kind of helping them find a more accurate do you know what I mean (laughs) I do I do and it can be awkward Mm. um, because you don't also want to be uh, dissing another teacher no so on the odd occasion when that's happened I think what I tend to focus on is the positive things that they've got out of the teaching I I definitely never I go out of my way to make sure that I'm not saying you learnt that incorrectly I I would go well this is how I understand it and and I've done quite a lot of research on it or I read this book or if you want to read what I read you know or go and watch this video to find out why I think like this rather than saying what you were taught was inaccurate Um, and and I think I've also said well 
you know, every teacher's different and they come from a different angle and this has been my angle, which is much more scientific and medical and anatomical. The, you know, your past teacher may have chosen to go in a different direction. So um, the other thing too is I think back on my experience because I had six years of lessons with, um, with a teacher who, from a technical point of view, she did improve my voice, but she didn't actually fix the problem that I'd come to her with in those mm. six years. And because of my ignorance, I didn't realise that I should have probably moved on. But also there wasn't maybe anybody else who could fix it from where I was. But she encouraged me to go out and do stuff that I would never have done from a performance point of view. And so, and also she was just such a wonderful community builder and um, uh, really nurturing and I took all that stuff you know and brought it into my teaching and recognized that I wouldn't have had the courage to go out and do an audition for a musical theatre show uh, let alone you know actually get into one and and you know do a long run and have that experience I would never have gone and done any competitions which you know I did relatively well in I would never have thought about going and doing my degree probably if it hadn't been for her. So I, th I think everybody can teach you something and bring you something and they're the things that we fo need to focus on. Yeah. And the thing is you don't have to necessarily talk about it if, if the student doesn't bring it up anyway. No, I, I wouldn't. If, if, the, if the students don't directly ask me, yeah. then uh, I'll just kind of move on to the next thing and I'm like I guess the hardest one if they go I went back to like if, if you've done the uh, like taught them something especially like I guess classroom academic stuff and they go back to their old teacher in like summer holiday or something mm -hmm. and they come back and they go me I've learned that blah 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 and 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 they really disagree yeah, That's well, like, yeah, the thing is to put it on the onus onto the student to go and do the research to then come up with their own conclusion. Yeah. And especially in an academic setting because actually, you know, if you do go into Masters and, you know, you can't be sitting there saying she said, he said, and so therefore it's correct. Because if we went by, you know, the news of the sun or the daily news and we led our yeah. life that way... <laughs> we'd have a very different perspective on what the real world was. Um, but if we go and do some research and find, and like today with Google, you know, mm. and, and with um, YouTube, there's really no reason why they can't um, go and figure it out for themselves, especially if it's an anatomical or scientific thing. That, and, and also, you know, if you have a paper or a book on it and, and you just ask the student to come to their own conclusion rather than just taking anything, including what you say for gospel. Yeah. I, yeah. I do encourage autonomous thought. I think that is yeah. great. Yeah. YouTube is another challenge, actually, because they'll come in and, oh, I, I do some warm ups from YouTube. And you go, why don't you work on the stuff we did? Because... Yeah. You know that that's what that was made for you, and YouTube is made for someone yeah. else. But you have that's to funny. That. Yeah. So um, we have a question here from one of the best members, Sarah, and she's um, asked us to talk about uh, and help her understand how we can apply exercises into song. 
Um, she wants to know how can we help our students to work on their songs via scales, vowels, etc. What should we look for in the song to choose the right exercise? And how can we help them perform the song? Use of dynamics, telling the story of the song, etc. It's quite a lot in that question, isn't there? Definitely, it's a very multi-layered. Uh, great question. So, I uh, we're assuming that there's somebody who um, is struggling with the song. Mm. Um, because if they're not struggling with the song, we'll just go straight to the song uh, after warming up. Um, I would look for, I would get them to sing it through and actually just listen and make a couple of notes the first time. Uh, sometimes if it's a lot of trouble, I might just ask them to sing until the first chorus because singing the whole song will waste us time that we could be working. Mm. And obviously the more you sing it in the less effective way the more you uh, cement that muscle memory yeah and and just I wanted to put a point in there because sometimes a, a singer especially when they in the beginnings you know they'll feel like um that it's been a total disaster because you've stopped them without mm. them finishing the song so I often will say that's great I've got a lot of information now to help you with the things that you need so making sure that you you explain to the singer that definitely we, you know, we've got the information we need to then start working through the whole song. Um, I think that's an important point to make there. If I have an hour, I tend to get them to sing the whole thing through because mm. we know, especially if they're doing something with it, like next week audition or something like that, because if you just work on the first bit, then they might have had a lot of more trouble later and you kind of have to prioritise which monster to deal with first. Yes. So, <laughs> and I will let them sing it all the way through. And then I said, okay, um, can you sing it again for me? This time I'll stop you. But I might give them a couple of comp- pointers before that. Mm. Um, I might also, after I've done that, so we might then use semi-occluded exercises. If it's a muscle air balance, especially if it's, so I, I tend to think in the power source filter, you know, airflow, vocal folds, uh, vocal tract um so I'll, if i feel like it's more the the power source interaction that isn't ideal then i'll definitely go to semi-occluded first um i find on songs that is a great one for that um straw straw in the water uh, straw in water if it's um if, uh, if i need to get there quicker mm-hmm. um and if it's somebody who might not be because you could definitely tell if they're doing it right with the straw you, um, if not, the honours is quite a lot on the students. So seeing the bubbles go either too bubbly or, or not enough, you get a lot of information. Um, then if they have kind of home-based thing that works particularly well with them, we might do sections in that. Um, if they tend to pull, I might take so it up. Explain what you mean by home-based. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So particular syllables, uh, vowel and consonant combinations. So vowel to either do the placement or to um, encourage a certain resonance and the consonants to encourage airflow uh, or decrease airflow. Um, and also placement in the mouth. If if it's kind of too throaty and I want to bring in a bit more of the mouth, um, second form and dominance kind of uh, resonance, if you want, um, I might put something that is moving it forward. but with a vowel that does whatever it is. Yeah, it's it's so hard to say exactly because they obviously depend on the, on the well, singer. As I understand home base, it's more often when you've worked with a singer for a while, you find that there are certain vowel 
consonant combinations that work really well and just exactly. to that place quickly. Yeah. And so um, for me, it's bar. <laughs> Most of the time it's bar. Um, but there are some people, other people for which other consonant vowel combinations work much better depending on what the issue is and so that's what I would call their their home base exactly yeah and and, and yeah your bar is a big one bow if you need a diphthong so you get the two mm-hmm. two vowels there a bit of eqing if you want um, um okay wolf. so, so yeah. yeah so you find you use their home base sound to go through the melody yeah, okay. And then I might make an exercise out of a certain challenging bit in the in the song. Yeah. Um, especially if it's like a fast riff or if it's a particular high bit mm-hmm. often the chorus hook line. Um, I'll make an exercise of that and re- repeat, repeat, repeat. Mm-hmm. And I might take it from a semi-occluded into something that is more like the home base than into the words. Would you slow it down or change? Slowing down, yeah, slow down. I might change key as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, tend to take it up if it's somebody who needs more release and take it down if it's somebody who needs more yes. uh, kind of TA uh, as some vocal for closure. Mm-hmm. Um, I might also use things, if it is about closure, like a ninja chop before they start, so they go, ha! and mm-hmm. get that kind of feel of the closure mm-hmm. going straight into the song. If uh-huh. it's too much subglottal pressure, I might get them to get rid of all the air first and then get into it. Um, yeah, slowing down is so... And taking away either rhythm or tempo. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the amazing slowdowner because you can move pitch mm-hmm. around. I'm, I'm not working for them. Um, <laughs> uh, the pitch down and they go straight onto Spotify or you can send an mp3 from your voice recorder straight in there and and and, and slow down their work as well so they can you have hear to pay for that is a is it software there's a free version but you can only do up to one minute oh, okay. um the paid one is about a tenner but i pretty much use it every lesson so mm. it's um yeah i kind of and yeah, is that also... for um apple or for pc as well I don't know if it's for PC. I haven't been in that world for a while, but um, I'm going to write it down. And so amazing, yeah. dance, slow down. Yeah, and you can import backing tracks directly from Spotify. Um, so most of the time, that's what I tend to do, and mm-hmm. and I can slow that down or change the key. Mm-hmm. Um, so really handy tool. Um, what was the other thing? So um, yeah, so you take away the rhythm. Yeah, you slow down the melody. Um, or you, or you uh, change the key. Would you ever change the key of the song? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So up if it, if I think they need more release, and down if they need. Oh, okay. More. So, yeah. Okay. So um, another thing that I do is I look at the vowels of the mm-hmm. words that they're having trouble with, and I might substitute uh, the consonant with a more helpful one. Yeah. Do that a lot. Yeah, or I might actually try and manoeuvre the vowel as you know to one that's a little easier, and then try and get it back to the original vowel. Yeah, or yeah. paint the vowel with. Um, I tend to write the lyrics out if we if we've gotten to kind of a little bit further, so we can do it on the exercise. Mm. Uh, I might just do a little bit of vowel modification. So especially look for diphthongs and triphthongs, so two or three vowels together, because if each vowel has a different property. And you're going like fire, <laughs> and all of a sudden you you've got a lot of different uh, mm. frequencies there. So um, I'd go fire, <laughs> depending on where it is in the in the mm. register, because obviously different mm. vowels are better for certain. But um, also look at consonants. 
again, if somebody has a tendency to disconnect singing mm. an app or a sh or a s mm. you know might not quite help them so that's where a more helpful consonants could be really good so what about um how might you use scales to help so what what's your logical thinking with regard to that um I tend to use scales more to kind of prepare the voice rather than go back to scale, unless somebody is really unsuccessful and I might have to go back to find a place mm. and, and I knew a scale worked well. However, it might be like if you're doing like a Christina Aguilera song and there's loads of blues, bluesy riffs on, actually go do, going back and doing some minor blues scale tends to be mm. really helpful with riffs. Or uh, another really good riffy one is the harmonic minor. Mm -hmm. I think that one... or I don't use too many uh, scales after moving on to application mm. because I think at that point, well, depends where in the development the singer is. Um, if somebody needs to sing something for, then I tend to stay on the song. And, mm. and if, it's, if the lesson is almost running out, if I need to take that key down or just do the verse and some, just to make them go out and feel like they've improved, mm. then, you know, sometimes you kind of have to, abort mission and, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and just realize that this isn't going to be done in the time and uh yeah with the resources you have available yeah. um but um i think i think that putting the conviction and the intention in you're talking about how to get the performance yeah. in i use a lot of actioning um so active verbs and i'll get them to put that next to well Sometimes it's enough to make them think about the backstory and, and things just click in. Mm. But if that's not the case, then um, I will get them to find an active verb to play because it tends to be much more nuanced than playing emotion. Mm -hmm. Emotion might be like happy, mm. sad, and like over the top and you know fists of emotion kind of thing. But playing and so you might say I love you. But that could be, oh, my God, you got my, my favorite tickets to see uh, see my favorite band. I love you. Right. Or I, I love my pet or, you know, you're my best friend. Or or it could be, don't leave me, you know. So if you say, I verb you. So essentially, that could be, I need you. But you're actually singing, I love you. Okay. Okay. So it could be, I adore you. But um, the more active, actually, the more the better. But it, it's, it's worth looking up, and I actually have a little book mm -hmm. that's called um, Actions, mm -hmm. um, and that I've learned from some of the acting teachers at mm -hmm. Clippa, and and some students it just works really well because they wow. stop singing, yes. they start just thinking, <laughs> forming. Yeah. Mm. So, what about uh, at what point would you bring in use of dynamics? Um, from the very beginning mm -hmm. I might leave that like I'll leave the rhythm and the tempo if we are working on pure technique stuff but often trouble later on is because you started too loud or mm. uh, you know the shape of the song sometimes but matter more than whether it's you know you can you might have a, a section that is really not well sung mm. almost talked but it's exactly what that song needs so mm. yeah I, I think dynamics and, and intention 
is what I appreciate the most in music. Mm -hmm. So I'll probably try and go there, even though I now I'm a vocal geek and, and a singing teacher proud, you know, I still go to vocal coaching and getting that song out of them, regardless of technique, mm. and then keep on moving the voice along with the yeah. exercises. Do you, do you have any specific dynamics, exercises or um, strategies? Um, well, exercise, I think the, the Mesa de Voce, the, mm. uh, going from really quiet and going really loud and then back again. So crescendo, diminuendo. Oh, that looks funny on camera. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I use... A lot. I think that's right across the entire range is very difficult but beautiful exercise. Um, actually doing more aspirate consonants, going to harder consonants mm -hmm. in sections, uh, also using vowels that are more kind of closed and narrow mm -hmm. in sections that should be quieter and then uh, big, loud, wide, dentist-wide vowels mm -hmm. for sections that should be louder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because I don't think people really think about the fact that there's a variety of ways that the voice can create dynamic. Mm. There's the actual control of, of uh, TA, CT and, uh, you know, math. Pressure and closure. Yeah, pressure yeah, and closure compression. from that point of view. But there is also vocal qualities uh, yeah. and the use, as you said, of vowels um, to help manipulate certain dynamics and of course quite often and we run this in as everyone knows the uh, if I ain't got you we talk about at the beginning when Alicia is you know dynamically very soft how does she do that she does it by being breathy is that because she doesn't have access at the moment to well-balanced voice which is generally the conclusion we come to <laughs> yeah but she's a musician and a performer and so she's doing whatever she can in order to achieve that dynamic whether so, it's, so the song yeah. yeah whether it's the most healthiest way from a voice point of view you know that's a whole other thing but um because she knows that's what her voice is just capable of today she may not always have done it that way or may not always do it that way but in that moment that was the only choice she had was to use vocal quality in order to get the dynamic she wanted so um I think that's quite interesting but for me I wouldn't really be delivering using that in the in my uh, teaching until I had a fairly what I consider advanced voice where they know the difference uh, and they understand also the, the, you know, the potential issues that can arise from using those qualities a lot. Yeah. I try, and, I try and work in a balanced mm. vocal compression and then going into kind of stronger, medium, weak, but I, I try to stay away from really whispery and excessive, however... Sometimes that's what the song needs, and at the very end of the chorus, if if we do it, but we stay eighty percent in the balanced voice for the rest of the set or the rest of the song. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing, actually, a challenge for teaching. I have this fantastic um, function band singer that I'm working with, and one thing that's kind of occurred to me is that that 
is so much more demanding than the original artist because they are singing the hits that are always dun, dun, dun. everything is you know he's, he's basically living on an f sharp and a g always yeah always involved there um and we kind of working on moving the set list around to just ensure that he's he's in different coordination because mm. you know if you stay in one coordination whatever that is it might be an easy course you know if you hold the camera up for a long while your arms start it's not a hard coordination but the muscles just not designed to stay in one coordination for long so mm. yes yeah, so actually I was when I was just in Vienna uh, for <laughs> Christmas there were those guys those statue people that you know, it's out of um, the palace there, Schoenberg. Yeah. And um, and I was like thinking, how how do they train themselves to stand still for so long? You know, it must mm-hmm. take time to build up that stamina. Definitely. That's why they do the whole sort of thank you and yes, probably have a little moves, yeah. Because it's actually not healthy, is it, for your voice no. or for anything, any muscle, to stay in that one position for a long time. Actually, finally... Um, there's a great podcast uh, Amanda Palmer mm-hmm. she used to be a human statue and she talks about the performance connection you get mm-hmm. when it's just through a, a simple look yeah um, it's a good podcast for those of you who haven't seen it well it's a book <laughs> as well um, is oh it yeah something of asking art of asking or the art of asking art yes of that's it yeah. right well we've had an amazing first podcast um, <laughs> I want to thank you very much for your time thanks for and, having me um yeah, so for anybody who's listening, make sure you send us some more questions in so that we have we can answer your questions. It doesn't matter whether it's about technique or performance or dealing with students on a personal level or business, uh, whatever it is, throw it at us. Um, we love, as you can see, talking about teaching and voice and uh, the journey. And we look forward to... Uh, bringing out more so there'll be one a month um for the moment and and at the moment it's just for members so i do wonder whether maybe we should make this more public uh because um i think other people would benefit from our discussions as well okay i'm going to say goodbye to you kaya thank you very much goodbye and thanks around the best community definitely bye do 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 do